So I looked it up, and sure enough, there was a dance hall. It was actually Keith's Theater in downtown Baltimore, super famous old theater. They converted the roof into a huge dance hall. And I found this fantastic interview online from like the 1990 or something. It was an old jazz player. And he was talking about all the partying and the fighting that took place on Keith's roof. And then he said, I said, yeah, there's this great article. He was talking about you guys fighting. He was talking about me and my friends. (laughs) Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any of this sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have local author Chris Conway, who has just published his third novel titled Bag Boys. This historical fiction novel focuses on the life of Phil Sigismundi, who at eight years old is drawn into the Baltimore mob as a numbers runner and later joins the army to fight in World War II. Chris joins us today to talk about his new book and give us the scoop on the bag boy. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about my new book. When, we, when you were here last time, you were talking about uh, the, the glove slinger, just, you know, World War II focus. And here we are uh, back again with another uh, World War II novel. But this one's got a spin on it. You've got some deep mob roots on this one. Uh, so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to know this story. Well, I was introduced to the, the gentleman who inspired the story from uh, the worship center in Ocean City. Uh, Phil is a member. Our pastor interviewed Mr. Sigismundi, and we got to hear the firsthand account of his remarkable life, and that's what kind of inspired me to start interviewing him, and I was very excited to get started on the project. Well, I remember reading in the foreword of your book that the minister says that as he was talking with Phil and he was hearing about his life, in his mind, he immediately went to your book, The Glove Slinger. He hears his story, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I have the guy with the life story and I actually know the writer who could pull this off. So was he kind of like, I suppose he was sort of the, the, the midway kind of point between the two of you? Yes, uh, uh, Pastor Brian and I are, are good friends, and he's the one that introduced me to the, to the Phil story. Even before I heard the interview, he was always kind of planting the seed about, uh, oh, you really need to talk to Phil. You're going to love his story, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, he was a big fan of the glove slinger, Brian was. So right. he... Uh, he talked me into it. Didn't take much convincing, though. <laughs> I like the story. As soon as I started hearing the, you know, Phil's story, I, I knew I wanted to write. When you are approaching someone, it's not just, I want to hear your cool stories. I want to hear your cool story, and I want to fictionalize it. So what's that conversation like when you're talking to someone who's alive and who's going to be reading, one would expect, who's going to be reading the, the work? Right. Well, um, so I wanted to... to start the story at, you know, he's eight years old, like you had read in, in their little intro. Mm-hmm. You know, he's eight years old when he's recruited into the mob. So I started trying to get my mindset around an eight-year-old. So that was what I struggled with, was how, was I, how am I going to tell this story from an eight-year-old's point of view and then have this person grow from eight years old you know, into manhood, and eventually the book ends, you know, he's an older man right, by yeah. the time the book ends. Spoilers, so, he was alive when you interviewed him. Yeah, spoiler, he's still, <laughs> he is still alive. So it, it, you know, it encompasses a very long period of time. Right. So he was born in, in uh, 1924. Uh-huh. So he's still alive today. So you could just you know, do the math on how old the guy is. So 
uh, I had to I had to get uh, my mindset around telling a story first from an eight year old and a ten year old and then you know eventually uh, you know a sixteen and an eighteen year old and then a young man who goes to war and, and everything he did and saw it while he was out at war and mm-hmm. then he comes home and I had to try to do the transitioning from that that type of you know that age the age transitioning and I told the story in the first person so. I need to. I had to get myself into the Phil Sigismundi character, so I, I spent a lot of time talking to him and trying to figure out, you know, how he viewed the world, basically. Right. And I tried to add my own spin to it, of course. So I would have to say that the combination of the main characters, fifty percent Phil, fifty percent me. So, right. But, right. Uh, but yes, I had to talk to Phil a lot about what it was like for him growing up, and you know, he plainly states I had no childhood. Right. Know, I was uh, right, you know, from eight years old on, I always worked. I never, I, I never played. I was always doing something. I, I always had a job, always was working and never had a childhood. So I had to try to take that perspective of a boy with no childhood came from a bat, you know, father was very abusive, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, all these influences sure. into his life. So it, it, you know that was the struggle for me writing this book after hearing the story, listening to the interviews and interviews you gave at church, and then interviewing him myself. Right. How was I going to write this book? It took me probably two full months of just thinking before I even started to write. Because sure. what you, I'm sorry, because what you're doing is you're, it's not a straight biography, right? Because you you have to you have to find a very particular voice. You can't you can't put on your biography voice and 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 write in the way that you would write it if you were doing a straight biography and you also have to i guess choose which facts are salient and which facts you have to let go for the story's sake yeah that's correct i had to you know i use a lot of the stories that he told me are in the book so i guess that's the historical part of it but i created most of the characters Mm. are my my creation so it's his story he never once told me who it was that recruited him into the mob. Right. He never gave me a name or the circumstances around it. So I create. Yeah, that you have scene. to fill those blanks. Yeah, in. So sure. I fill those blanks in, and you know the whole running of numbers. You know, it was huge. It still is. I mean, people still play the illegal game of running the numbers. It right. Was, it just because lotteries came into play. And, you know, the government wanted a piece of the action, so. They, you know, running the numbers was the numbers were always illegal. Right. There are people who don't know what the numbers are. I was about to ask. Yes. Yeah, yes. I was about. I was so trying to So what is the number? Out. So uh, it was usually just three three numbers. A set three numbers. It was typically they were based on uh, horse racing, but it wasn't. You're not betting on a horse to win a race. It's the mob would set three numbers. Five thirty two was today's winning number, and they would take a combination of things: uh, a racetrack, a horse in a race and they all these you know they thousands of numbers to choose from right and they would arbitrarily say okay we're going to take the fifth race the third horse at the second track and that's today's number right and that's what and no one knows this and then they would all the bars all the clubs restaurants you name it factories to everything everybody played the numbers everybody's paying 10 cents 25 cents buying their three numbers and you could buy any combination numbers you want, you could buy a hundred different numbers if you want. You could pay, you know, a hundred dollars into the game. It's still, yeah. Well, it's very much, very much like the lottery. It's just it was a private lottery. Very much like the 
like today's lottery and these guys were, you know, the mob controlled it all and say, you know, a particular game is bringing in $10,000 and the winner is going to get $1,000. Well, to the people living in the 1930s and 40s, the $1,000 was a heck of a lot of money. Right. And their chances of winning it were astronomically low. Right. In order to win, you're, you know, you pay your, play your dime bet to get three numbers you may win a thousand dollars. Well, the mob kept nine thousand of it, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah and it does. I, again, like today, like when when the lottery is, right. you know, half a billion dollars. I'll, right. Even I'll play when it gets right. to. It, well, we will all buy numbers. We'll spend a dollar to get our numbers, and you know, and pray that they hit. So right. it's the same thing was running. Was the numbers was going on in every city in America, everywhere. It was everywhere. We're not just Baltimore. Right. And the mob would recruit kids to carry the money bags between the places, and they would carry them. They would run the numbers, mm-hmm. hence the name, running the numbers. And those kids were called bag boys. Very cool. And I, I put an S on it, bag boys, and my cover has a picture of three boys from the 1930s smoking cigarettes, looking like hoodlums. <laughs> right. Because uh, the uh, the main character had two friends, and it was the three of them were bag boys together, and they. They're in the story throughout the whole book, except the part where he goes off to World War II that his friends don't go with him. Right. But yeah, and I would think that writing, you know, you're an adult and you have to sort of get into the consciousness of an eight-year-old. And so you're trying to describe as an adult, being an, your narrator at that moment is eight years old, who is describing a very adult thing, which is, the mob and being afraid. I mean, you know, when when Phil in, in the opening pages, he he knows to be scared. You know, when he's first approach, I mean, his teeth are chattering, and the yeah. guy says, "Do you know who I am?" And he was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Are you scared of me?" He's like, "I didn't want to lie to him, so I just said yes." You know. <laughs> so it's. Can you tell me a little bit about that process for you as as a writer to be adult going back to being? And he's and and Phil even said, "I had no childhood," but what. How did you sort of work in your mind that that component of that transition there? Well, like I said, it took me two months of thinking how, right. how I was even going to start the book. Other two books that I that I have written, I, I pretty much knew my beginnings and I knew my end before mm-hmm. I even started writing, and it, I just had to fill in the blanks. This one, I, I did not have that. I, I had no idea how I was going to start it, if it was going to be an old man telling the story and then you know going back in time to tell it. You know, and, right, right, and then, but then, I, you know, then it hit me. I, you know, I'm just gonna tell this story as as a child, and I I really tried hard to do it as a child. Right. From whatever influences we have in our lives, from other books that I've read, uh, you know, watching movies that have kids in it, you just start kind of, th- you know, you start thinking like a kid. Yeah, because kids really are these incredible. Um, I mean, they just take it all in, you know, and they mm-hmm. have such a different perspective on the world that I think might be might have been useful for you to kind of ease your reader into a very tough topic, maybe. That's know. true. I hadn't thought about that. But yes, I, I ease, I, I try to use humor, as I think right. you saw from the way that writing style of what you did Absolutely. read. I try to use humor. I didn't want it to be very serious. I have the, the main mob guy. I give him a crazy nickname. His nickname is Beans. Hmm. So I've, you know, it's kind of a funny, quirky nickname. Just to take the edge off. To take the edge off of him. And I have him, you know, laughing a big, you know, belly shaking laugh. And he never, he's never does anything mean or, except he makes him go, he, Fight. he yeah. turns him into a street <laughs> right. fighter. Yeah. Yeah. But he, even when he's doing the street fighting stuff, it's, it's kind of, oh, come on, of course you're going to do it. it. Oh, come on. You, you know, you can do it. He's always kind of right. pushing our character along 
it, but it's it's never really in a, in a mean, nasty, or aggressive way. It's I tried to I tried to do humor mm. in a tough subject. I hope I succeeded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and did you did you bring any other outside research into this? Like into the did you do any mob research or any? Because I know you've had it in your previous book, so I didn't know. Yeah. Oh yes, I I definitely uh, did research on 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 the mob, on the Baltimore mob. Um, there's not a lot out there. I looked. It's it was difficult to find it, but mm. I, you know, I was able to find the bits and pieces. And uh, yeah, I, I, can, I think I kind of weaved a fairly accurate picture of what it was, what organized crime was like in Baltimore during, starting in the '30s through the Depression, um, end of Prohibition, and eventually what the mob was like after my main character gets back into into it after the war. So 1946, when he comes home. And most of the book is settled in Little Italy, it, or takes place in Little Italy, and it also is on what's called the block, the famous area of Baltimore that's the red light district. Mm. So our main character eventually becomes a mob enforcer, and he works in the clubs on the block. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with local author Chris Conway. When you're trying to get the transition from, like, uh, eighth grader, I mean, eight-year-old with friends into into high school, um, that friend component of it, did you use any of, like, your own experiences? Because that's, that's, you're really, really tight with your, between between the time when you're eight and 12, especially if you're a boy, I know, you're really, mm-hmm. really tight with your friends um, and, and in a very particular way. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you kind of brought that experience into the book? Uh, well, see, I, I, I have the story, I mean, it, it basically go, runs in threes. He's all. It always seems to be him and two other guys. Mm-hmm. Even when he goes into war, his two best. There's just two guys. I like for whatever reason. I just have everything just be in threes. It just right. seemed to be easier to write the story without and a whole get, heck of a lot of characters. It clouding the. You get two different opinions. Two, two other guys <laughs> yeah. always. So I yes I I did try to bring in my own experiences with friends as a kid. You remember back exactly what you said, and it's. Once you make friends with with guys and you keep those friends for a long period of time, it's like what happens in this story, there's two, the three of them, the two friends and, and our main character, are always together. They're a team. They're recruited at the same time. They go from bag boys to street fighters to mob enforcers together the whole way. Right. They go to enlist in the army at the same time and all three of them are rejected by the navy for various reasons which is a true story phil and his two buddies he had more than two friends but he always would talk about the two guys that he was with all the times that's why we kept it to the two sure but they were all all three of them were rejected by the navy at the same you know when they went down at the same time right after uh, pearl harbor they were 17 years old and they were said to come back at 18 they they all turn 18 within a couple months of each other in my story they say i'll go back at the same time, and all three of them are rejected from the Navy. Mm-hmm. Two of them can't serve because of, you know, whatever reasons that I make up for them. But right. Our guy goes back after he turns eighteen, and the Navy rejects him, but the Army takes him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was what was the real story behind that? Well, the real story was that Phil was rejected from the Navy. That's mm-hmm. where they all wanted to join the Navy. Right. Uh, and why was why was he rejected from? The because Navy? of eyesight. Ah. He never wore glasses. Never had his eyes tested. You know. I see perfectly fine is what he tells the, <laughs> the Navy recruiter. But the Navy recruiter tells him, look behind you, kid. There's hundreds of men trying to join the Navy. Sorry, 
we can't use you. I'm sure the army will take you. They'll take anybody. He chooses cavalry, which is reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. And a little side note inside the book is he finds his solace away from his violent life with the mob. He goes out and rides horses. He discovers horse riding at a young age. Oh, wow. Which is true. Phil did. Sure. And so I I actually, I I make that whole part of it up based on Phil telling me, yeah, I would ride horses as a kid. So he joins the horse cavalry of all things. And, gets and they still had a horse cavalry even after World War I. <laughs> they still had a horse cavalry, absolutely. So he, when, he, when he joins, and he joins the horse cavalry, he's sent out to Fort Riley, Kansas, where they train, the, all the reconnaissance men get trained at Fort Riley. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they arrive there, they're, they're given the, the, you know, the bad news. You are only going to be a horse in the horse cavalry for very little bit of time because you'll all be mechanized cavalry here real soon, which means you're going to be you know, driving around in trucks right? Yeah. as opposed to riding horses because mm-hmm. there's just no need for horses. Yeah, I know that they did have horses in the, in the beginning through almost the middle of the First World War. And there are these great... Um, there are these great photos of these like French soldiers in like 1800 gear <laughs> and they've got the feather hats and they've got the big red pants and they're on horses and they're just getting absolutely annihilated with the yeah. machine guns the, yeah. the, with the with the recently invented, you know. Gatling guns. Uh, Gatling guns. Yeah, yeah oh it's my crazy. Gosh, that's nuts. But well, we all have heard of the, the charge of the light brigade. <laughs> yeah. that was the last great horse cavalry charge. Oh my gosh! Well, so there's also like the the so everybody thinks World War II. They think you know Germany and that sort of thing. So the character in your book does end up in Germany. Yes, he he fights in Europe. He he, uh, so he is in the cavalry, the horse cavalry to start, and he is obviously changed to mechanized cavalry, and he um, joins this. Well, he doesn't join. He's placed in the 71st Infantry Division, 71st Reconnaissance Troop. And a, a reconnaissance troop in World War II is a very small unit. There was only, oh, 90 or so enlisted men and a handful of officers. That was it. That was the entire troop. But they had a very important role. They, uh, they were the eyes and ears of very large groups of soldiers, infantrymen, that would be sent out into battle. But before the infantrymen actually went out into battle, those recon guys, those three platoons of infantry or of reconnaissance soldiers, they went out and found the enemy first, and then they would radio back as to what they found. Wow. Before the infantry guys were committed into battle. That happened almost, you know, I would say almost 100% of the time. The recon guys went out first. A very dangerous job. Most men did not volunteer for it. But uh, the uh, 71st Infantry Division deploys for combat late in the war. So they were one of the lucky divisions. And mm. we had, at the start of the war, we only had a handful of divisions. By D Day, we had almost 100 divisions ready to go into combat. We only had 18 divisions in combat. We still had 80-some-odd divisions ready to go. So at that point, it was the war planners now had to decide who was going to go. And mm-hmm. they were basically picking name, you know, numbers out of a hat. Okay, the 90th division is going to go, the 100th division is going to go, whatever divisions are, gonna, are now going to be committed. And they would ship them from England across the English Channel, and they would land in France, and they would join the battle. 71st didn't get chosen to go until the end of 1944. So on New Year's Day, these guys, New Year's Day 1945, these guys are boarding their transport ships. So they don't get into combat until February of 1945. The war ends in in beginning of May. They don't really see any significant combat until the very beginning of March. So they fight through March, through April, into May. Mm -hmm. 
But again, yeah. combat is combat, and World War II combat was ferocious, and that's what, he's, that's what he gets to see. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the, as we, you know, at the end of World War II, what we were, the soldiers were discovering, they were, you know, they were finding the concentration camps. Right. 71st Recon Troop liberates a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the focal point, I would have to say, of his time in combat. Seeing guys that he knew from training get killed obviously leaves a lasting impression. And even from the Phil interviews that he actually gave at church, he's, you know, one of the questions was, you know, tell us what combat was like. Well, it's pretty tough when you see your friend get shot in the face. Right. You're listening to, so what's your story? And today we're talking with local author, Chris Conway. When you're going, so this is, this is your third book and they're all, um, they've, they've all got this, this tie to, to historical events. When you are looking for like now for your next book. Are you just waiting to meet the right person to tell you the story that gets you started? How actively do you do you seek out subjects, or do you kind of wait for them to come to you? I think <laughs> I, well, I got them all in my head somewhere, you know? right? <laughs> uh, but yes, it's stories I, I, I hear. You know, I, I'm a good listener, and I remember stuff that I hear. So when I interview people, I don't even, I don't take notes. I just Mm -hmm. basically remember it. Then I write it down afterwards. But I, you know, I hear stories and I've heard, I've heard a a very interesting story. And I think, you know, I, I say it in my author's description in this book Mm -hmm. that I'm going to tackle a Vietnam story as my next story. And I, I use the Vietnam war for my first book. So. Gotcha. And I just had a quick question about when you are interviewing a person who's, still living and they've told you their life story and then you were saying okay i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna do this historical uh historical fiction account of what this person has told me Mm -hmm. what's that moment like when you turn the work back over to them for them to see your interpretation of kind of not not exactly their life because like tony said it's not a biography but to see your kind of artistic take on you know, what you, what you've been given. What was that moment like for you? Oh, it was a great, I had a great day because I, before the book was published, I, I took my manuscript to a Phil and, and his wife. They, they live in Ocean City. Um, and I, I, I asked him, I want to read you guys. I know, it, you know, we don't have all day. I can't read the whole book to you, but I want, I want to pick and choose stuff. So where would you like me to start? And, they, you know, she wanted to hear when they met. All right. Okay. <laughs> the to, love story. She wanted to know how she was, you know, how I, I it, of course, I, I got it. I got it wrong. So she made me change stuff. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I understand this is fiction, but. It took her a little while for to wrap herself around. The, I kept trying. This is all kind of, I even gave you a made up name. I mean, it's you, but it's kind of sort of not really you. Right. But she wanted me to take out a, you know, that guy wasn't my boyfriend. I don't, you, I don't want you to use that person. I don't want you to use that name. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so she made me rewrite some stuff. And then when I, I have uh, Phil propose to her, get down on a knee. He never got down on his knee. Uh, you know, so. stuff like that. She, I was like, it's, so, it, it's okay, Lorraine. It's fiction. Right, right. You know. But she made me change some stuff. It was, it was, it, that was a cute part of it. It was all cute stuff. It wasn't sure. any, anything that she was mad about. I said, "Oh, you can't, I don't want my, I don't want my kids thinking that Johnny was my boyfriend." So I had to change Johnny's name to Eddie. <laughs> so. Seriously. Yeah. And then, and then, I, then we went. Then okay, so I, I read. I ended up reading the whole chapter. 
because they were thrilled about you know hearing about that. And then, and then in reading it to them, there was this like this historical research and stuff. So when they, when they get when Phil gets back from the war, and he starts you know kind of dating, meeting the his future wife Lorraine in the book she's Mary, they would meet dancing, and I just created a dance hall that they would go to, and I'm reading that part of the book, and and she ch- chimes in. Oh, we would go dancing at Keith's roof. And I could not for the life of me understand what she was saying. Right. Keith's roof. I say it fast. and I mean, do you know what I'm saying? The name Keith. Yeah. But, you know, apostrophe S. Keith's roof. And I'm like, what the heck is Keith's roof? So I looked it up. And sure enough, there was a dance hall. It was actually Keith's Theater in downtown Baltimore. Super famous old theater. It sat like 2,000 people. They converted the roof into a huge dance hall, and they would play big band swing music up there throughout the 40s. Oh, wow. And I found this fantastic interview online from like the 19, 1990 or something. It was an old jazz player, an old sax player, was oh, being cool. interviewed, and he was talking about all the partying and the fighting that took place on Keith's roof. <laughs> and I, and awesome. I was, I, so I asked Phil, I go, hey, have you ever heard of this? I can't think of the, the jazz player's name. And he says, oh, of course, he was awesome. Yeah, we, oh, he was there every Saturday night. And then he said, Egg. I said, yeah, there's this great article. He was talking about you guys fighting. He was, he was talking about me and my friends. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Because every, every Saturday night, Phil and his friends are up on that roof fighting guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I use that whole scene in the book. This is your third time out. What are you going to do differently to promote the book? What are you going to do the same? I have my official release and release signing is going to be on December 2nd right here in Berlin at Bruder Home on Main Street. And then the third, Sunday the third, uh, down in Ocean City at the 45th Street Tap House. Oh, that's so cool. that's kind of my that's kickoff. Cool. And then yeah. eventually we're, we're going to try to work a signing through the worship center mm-hmm. and have Phil be part of that signing. I'll do the book clubs that I've, that I've done for the last two books. I'll mm-hmm. try to promote myself for another two or three book clubs locally. And I'd love to find a place in Baltimore to do a signing. There's got to be a historical, yeah, historical society. Yeah, society someplace, yeah. yeah in Baltimore. The whole, but the whole story takes place in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the section of Little Italy is where he grows up, and the block is still there. Some of these clubs he worked at in the 1930s are still in existence today. The 2 o'clock club is where I based the story out of, for mm-hmm. the most part. And that's still there? Yeah, it's still there. When uh, you know Phil and I have gone to Baltimore together, and we've done the tour of the area and we drove down Baltimore Avenue and right there is the two o'clock club and he's pointing them out Oasis that was one of the clubs I was a enforcer in and there's the two o'clock club that's where I was at and that's fantastic oh, man. the it's old Gaiety like, Theater yeah. they're all still there it's pretty amazing it's like you're almost time traveling in a sense you yeah. know you're in this car with this guy and this you're 93 just, year old man that just yeah just telling you all the, all the crazy stuff that he did. Yes. That is really fantastic. I, I love those stories where, you know, you meet these people with these incredible stories and it just it just gets right to you. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I'm just kind of like in my head replaying that moment where you're in the car with this guy and he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and he's pointing out the different points. and Every single time I talk to this guy, I, f- I hear something new and amazing and I'm like, Ugh. You, yeah. Why didn't you ever tell me that before? <laughs> yeah. Now I have to write a whole nother chapter. Right, right. So right. my 250 page book became 350 pages. <laughs> You're like Phil. You got to stop, stop telling stories. You got to stop now. telling me the stories yeah, because they're, they're all so good. Do you know what you'll never find in a Baltimore bar? Your limericks, especially not on the wall. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe in a bathroom. 
<laughs> uh, but if they wanted to get, if anybody wanted a limerick, how would they get that? If you like the show and you like what we're doing every week and you'd like to reach out to us, you can go to www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com. Click on the contact us button and you can give us your name, your mailing address. You can pick a word. Tony will put that word into a limerick. I will put it into a haiku. We will put it on a fancy schmancy so what's your story postcard. Put a stamp on it and we will pay a guy to bring it to your house. Just like it's 1856. Or 1932. Right, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Calvary can bring it. Absolutely. All right, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here and coming back on the podcast. It was my pleasure. So, What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at... So what's your story podcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.